All right, Paul. What is this, four times now with you and me? Uh, it's actually number five. Five dollar foot long. I'm here for the fifth time, and I'm still loving it. This is what great. Is five dollar what? Five dollar foot long. You know, the, uh, the old subway ads. This is probably going back quite a ways, at least 10 years or so, because I haven't seen a $5 sandwich in a very long time. Jeez. But, uh, yeah, $5 footlongs. They had a nice little jingle to it. I don't remember that. I just remember Jared, and then he was summarily dismissed in some sort of scandal. Yeah, banished, yes. <laughs> Poor Jared. Poor Jared. Yeah. Yeah, so how are you doing? How's your last week been? Uh, it's gone pretty good. Still living the life within quarantine, but things are, are looking up a little bit here in Ontario. Uh, the government is loosening up the rules a little bit. I actually played golf on Sunday, if you can believe that. Oh, yeah, I heard the golf courses were opened up. Yeah, yeah, no, golf courses opened. Um, as long as they practice safe social distancing, which goes without saying. Uh, I managed to get out with a mutual friend of ours, Jason, and we just did nine holes just to knock the rust off our games, and trust me, I, I had a lot of rust on my game. Only took me six holes to get warmed up, but by uh, by the last hole, I managed to par it, and it's got me coming back for more. I, I've got the golf bug in me right now, and you and I are both softball fans. We, we play a lot of softball, and uh, it doesn't look too promising for playing team sports this summer. Well, I just want to go back to the golf thing for a sec. So yeah, what did sure. that look like as far as how was socially dis – I mean, golf is kind of by nature somewhat distanced in that, you know, people are going for their balls and in different places on the fairway. But what did that look like when you showed up at the course, like this in terms of social distance and how, how things are going? Like what did that look like? Well, believe it or not, but the, the course was actually not as busy as I thought it was going to be. Uh, so typically, usual golf tee-off times are paced about eight minutes apart. Uh, under the new social distancing rules, it's now about 15 minutes. So basically, four groups within an hour. Uh, so you, you definitely have a little bit more spacing on the golf course. And when you go out on the course, obviously, we, my Jason and I were teamed up with uh, two other guys. So we all walked, and you know we did our best in terms of keeping social distancing, and I, I'd like to think that it worked pretty good. Uh, with respect to golf cart rentals, uh, the power carts, I believe it's only one person per cart, unless you can prove that you live in the same household. Okay. But and I so think golf courses, yeah. I was going to say, so the... You're there. You get to the parking lot. Do you have to go into the clubhouse like separately, yeah. or do you stand like a few feet behind the person? They have like queues set up where you stand to get your at at the counter. Yeah. And how did that look? Well, it's again the social distancing guidelines. So I believe it's uh, two meters apart or six feet apart. Uh, so as long as you're practicing social distancing, then everything seems to be fine. Um, obviously, in the pro shop, they had the, the plexiglass cover up uh, where, mm -hmm. where the cashier was mm -hmm. um, but so far it, it seemed to work well and I would like to think that if golf courses if, if they can successfully implement this and there's no reason why golf can't continue on you know however long COVID stays with us 
But I, I'd say this this seemed to be a good success story. And, you know, we need to have something to look forward to, some sense of normalcy in our lives. And if, if golf is that outlet, then that that's, that's amazing. I, I don't know if golf driving ranges are open yet. It depends on the course. Okay. But uh, it yeah. is nice to see. And we, we're finally starting to get some good weather here in Ontario. So... All the more reason why it would be uh, very nice to to be out on the golf course quite a bit this this summer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, how, yeah. How are th- how are things with you? Well, we're in the process of getting our move sorted out here. We uh, we have our dates. We'll be uh, flying out of here on the third of July, and we expect to have our house packed up by the nineteenth of June. So between June nineteenth and July third, we're hoping, crossing our fingers, that we'll be able to do a little bit of traveling within Japan. See, for instance, Hiroshima, which is a part of Japan we never got to. And it's it's an important historical place for us to, to see. We do want to see it. And we'll just have to kind of feel it out in the next month as to, is that going to be possible to do it? I mean, Shinkansen's, the yeah. high-speed trains are operating now. But Tokyo is considered one of the hot spots in Japan, so people outside of Japan don't exactly get excited when they hear people from Tokyo are coming to visit. So there could be a little bit of resistance around like booking accommodations. If if we're booking accommodations and they know we're coming from Tokyo, that could get some backs up. And so we haven't really started exploring that yet. But hopefully by a month from now, they'll have lifted this state of emergency, which they're planning to lift by the end of the month, and that things will be a little bit more free in terms of what we can do yeah well hopefully hopefully you're able to get some last minute traveling in because i think once you leave japan it's uh it's i guess it's a little bit more difficult to to go back to japan it's not exactly around the corner so um but i would imagine based on your incredible experiences i'm sure it won't be the last time you, you're in japan so well i don't know i but, mean we spent f- almost four years here so i don't think Japan's on our would be on our list of any time to come back to it anytime soon. Um, yeah, I just I I suspect we won't be coming to Japan anytime soon. The one uh-huh. thing we did get sorted out the cat left, Fluffy left uh, yesterday. Yeah, now you, you bring up something interesting because you and I we we talked about this earlier this morning about about transporting your cat, and I actually found this story a little fascinating. How I guess the logistics of sending a cat halfway across the world, and yeah, it really is is kind of fascinating to think about it in in the sense that you know two days from now a cat in Japan is going to be here in Canada. So mm-hmm. um, I I really didn't know much about how these I guess pet transport services work. So maybe maybe you'd like to talk about it a little bit. Yeah. So basically, there's kind of two ways to transport an animal to wherever it is you're going. You can either take it on the plane with you, which requires you to put it on, take it on the plane, put it under the seat in front of you. And, you know, in a a situation where you're flying, I mean, the the travel time between here and Toronto is about 12 hours. The thought of having a cat in, in the plane with us for 12 hours is not really a pleasant thought, to be honest. So we, you have another option, which is that you have the cat shipped separately and you get a pet relocation service, which we're lucky to have access to, who shows up here one, one morning, yesterday morning, the cat service showed up here. We had a crate we had already purchased that meets the requirements that you have to have for 
for the crate for the animal that meets the guidelines of the airport. I think it has to meet the guidelines of the animal itself. Obviously, it can't be too small a crate or too big a crate. So we get the right size crate. A person literally rang the doorbell yesterday morning around 11 a.m. and came and got the cat. Cat went off and would have been driven to the airport here in Tokyo and put on a plane. And the cat will fly through Vancouver because right now with flights being restricted, they it has to fly through Vancouver just because of the limited options for flights. And it will go through some testing or a quick check once it arrives in Canada. And then it'll be put on a plane to Toronto, which is about a five-hour flight or so from Vancouver to Toronto. Then it'll get checked again, probably in some capacity. They'll make sure it has water. I guess when it arrives in Vancouver, they'll clean the cage because 14 hours on a plane, you're assuming it's going to have to do its business. Yeah. Yeah. So once, <laughs> once it arrives in Toronto, it'll be put on a truck or a van. Someone's going to drive it out to my parents and then it'll be there until we're ready to bring her back to our permanent house in Toronto, which we won't be getting access to until, until September. But Cat mm. will live with my parents for a few months through that transition. So it is a pretty organized process. I mean, there's probably these various checkpoints from the point it leaves here to getting to the airport to the next airport. Uh, the, the the pet service takes takes care of all that. Yeah, when you mentioned the the pet service, it sounds like a really interesting niche service that is provided. Y- one really wouldn't think about having a pet transport service, but man, is it really a, a real specialized business and there's a real need for it. I guess you don't realize how many expats you know, travel the world and obviously they would have their own animals that they would bring with them. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this this fills a, a this meets like a, an incredible service. I, I guess there's a little bit of a, I guess a, a trust factor that you have to put in into these people and a bit of a, a leap of faith. And I'm assuming that they have a good success ratio. Otherwise, one would think that they wouldn't remain in business. Right. But, you know, hopefully everything everything works out great and uh, the cat will be with your parents uh, within a few days. How, how long does the process take? You, I think you mentioned about two to three days in terms of the transport because there, there's a lot of stopovers there. Well, there's, yeah, so the the cat is supposed to be in Canada on Friday, which I'm assuming would be Canada time Friday, which would be Saturday our time, sometimes Saturday, early Saturday. Um, yeah, it, it will be Saturday. So I guess at the end of the day, it'll be but like about four days. days of three to four days three of four. travel. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the, the time difference and everything. So. Yeah, it'll be it'll be there. Uh, we hope mm-hmm. it'll make it there safely. Um, and you're right that, especially with COVID, that it was even more important that a proper transportation service be selected because there was definitely more involved in the shipping of the cat. On in one way, it was easier because the cat Japan has extremely high quarantine restrictions regarding animals coming into the country. It's considered a rabies-free country. So they they are very meticulous about making sure the cat has all the rabies shots it's supposed to have. And quarantine's now a word we're using a lot, but <laughs> yeah. normally it's not really 
applied to humans so much. I, I mostly heard it in, a, in an animal capacity when it comes to bringing animals into countries. They have to go through a quarantine period. If all your paperwork is in order coming into Japan, a quarantine period should take all of about an hour. But if anything is not in check, it can result in days, weeks of the cat being quarantined or the animal being quarantined if it doesn't meet the requirements. So going back will actually be a little bit easier because Canada isn't quite as restrictive. And the things we did in to get the cat into Japan all make it easier to get it to Canada. Yeah. Well, here's hoping everything goes well and your, your cat will be uh, here in Ontario on, on Friday. All right, this is the time when we talk about a product or service that we're enjoying the use of. And I wanted to give a shout out to actually a piece of equipment that I use for this podcast, which is the ATR2100. It's a microphone that is made by Audio-Technica. It is the kind of go-to mic, especially for starter podcasters. And it's not too expensive. It's about 100 bucks. And it is both XLR and USB capability, which um, for those that know music, professionals would use an XLR mic when they're plugging into stage equipment. It's just a higher quality connection for recording, for broadcasting. And so this microphone has the ability to connect that way. It also has a USB connection, which is how I use the microphone for connecting into the my computer here for recording so my shout out is to the xlr 2100 or sorry the atr 2100 by audio technica well it certainly sounds very good quality i think i will invest in one myself uh in terms of my product or, or thing that i'd like to talk about today is actually a, a tv show uh it's a show that is been around for a couple of years. I believe it's in its last season, which is season 4. It's a show called Brockmire. Hmm. And it's a it's a half-hour comedy show and uh it stars Hank Azaria, who uh the Simpsons a, guy. A good, the Simpsons guy and a, and an awesome character actor who's in a, in a he's in a ton of movies. Very quickly the premise of Brockmire, he plays a I guess a washed up baseball broadcaster who uh, I guess left the game for about 10 years because of some personal issues and now he, he's back uh, being a broadcaster of a, of a minor league baseball team in the Midwest Midwestern state somewhere and it's just about his exploits and the interesting people in the town and I, I don't know it's it's a really it's a great comedy show, in my opinion. It's only a half hour, so it's easy to knock off quite a few episodes when you got some time to kill. It's funny. Uh, but I, I think you, you got to appreciate baseball. I think you, you have to have a, a, an appreciation or a love of baseball to kind of get the show. I think if, if you didn't like baseball, you may not really get the humor or, or the storyline behind it. But either way, I like it, and uh, I recommend it for sure. I, I think you'd like it, Clark. All right. Yeah, I'll check that out. Uh, always good to have some light stuff right now. And, and bite-sized chunks is good, too, that kind of 20-minute episode. You know, just building yeah. on that, um, I'll say Shit's Creek. If you haven't seen Shit's Creek, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, fantastic comedy duo. The supporting actors are awesome, too. So Shit's Creek, if you are looking for something else a bit light and... and uh, 
yeah, 20 minute segments and you can rattle off a season in a couple of days if you're not uh, careful. Yeah, no, we need those shows at this time, that's for sure. Okay, so let's move into the documentary section. We we brought this up last episode that we were going to have a look at The Great Hack. It's a Netflix documentary. So The Great Hack is a 2019 documentary film about the Facebook Cambridge Analytica data scandal. The documentary focuses on Professor David Carroll of Parsons and the New School, and also Brittany Kaiser, former business development director for Cambridge Analytica, and British investigative journalist Carol Cadwalder. Their stories interweave to expose the story of Cambridge Analytica in, Analytica in the politics of various countries, including the United Kingdom's Brexit campaign and the 2016 United States elections. So... I guess uh, I'd start by saying, why did we choose this documentary in the first place? Well, I think this was um, a documentary that obviously it it's kind of speaks to everyone when it's talking about, um, you know, I guess the harvesting of, of data of, um, you know, the what we call like the, the scraped data for millions of Facebook users. Um, I think this is a very relevant topic and and I didn't know a lot about it going into it. It, it kind of piqued my interest because I'm I'm interested in anything that's that has to do with politics. Um but I, I really learned a lot about this. I, I had a, a basic understanding. I, I I do recall when Mark Zuckerberg got called before testifying with with the US US Senate committee and I remember not sort of following it, but not really understanding the true context as to why he was uh, called upon to testify. Uh, this certainly explains that. And, and I think anyone who is on social media, especially Facebook, needs to needs to watch this documentary because it makes you think, that's for sure. Yeah, it's it's something I'd heard about. I'd heard that there'd be a lot of eye-opening moments in it, some things that we may have actually even be disturbed to hear about. And I guess what, um, where this all really started, which I didn't know, was Cambridge Analytica was working with the Ted Cruz election campaign back when he was kind of the runner-up to Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. And mm -hmm. that uh, Facebook uh, was being used as a means for what they call uh, political voter surveillance. And when Cruz dropped out to give way to Donald Trump, Cambridge was then contracted, Cambridge Analytica contracted with the Donald Trump campaign to aid in the 2016 presidential election. And basically, it was involving harvesting millions of people's Facebook accounts with, with what they're saying was without their consent. So I guess that's the thing. Was it really without their consent? I mean, the... There are terms and conditions when you sign up for apps that lay out some of these things. I mean, do you buy that? Do you believe that Facebook users' data was being used without their consent? Yes and no. Um, I, I guess where this all kind of stems from, and this is where the documentary sort of started off with this, is that, you know, most people have made comments about how you get, I guess, targeted ads popping up on, on your cell phone. Um, or I guess suggested Google searches based on conversations you've had with people. So I think most people would agree that 
you know, it's a little creepy when it sounds like your your phone is listening to you. Um, so where we're going with this is that when we talked about the how this information is used for elections, you know, for the election of Donald Trump and uh, and the passing of, of Brexit, people's information w- was was extracted from social media sites, Facebook, etc., to figure out their political views. And companies like Cambridge Analytica targeted individuals based on their, you know, I guess political leanings. And one might argue that this was used to influence elections and to influence the uh, the outcome of, of Brexit. But to answer your question, you know, is were Facebook users was this taken against their their knowledge or against their permission? Well, I, I guess that kind of begs the bigger question where if you post something on social media, should you expect to have privacy? You know, should we expect that anything that we post on Facebook be completely private? And and I think the answer it's it's hard to answer that because it's we're getting into a lot of gray areas here. I think on the surface, yes, it is a violation of people's privacy. However, if you do post on Facebook, you one would have to expect, especially in this day and age where information is is so freely moved within uh, within the within the web, that any information you post on social media is is going to be used in some capacity. Yeah, I like how they open up David Carroll. he he says here, and I quote this the we were so in love with the gift of free connectivity that no one bothered to read the terms and conditions, which is which is what Facebook kind of came out as, this ability to connect all sorts of people. And we just kind of signed up, went along with it, and then sort of forgot about everything else. And then in the background, all this data harvesting was going on and then being manipulated by people, Cambridge Analytica using it to contract with actually a number of elections across the world. There was maybe a dozen or so different campaigns that they were involved with. We mentioned Ted Cruz, Donald Trump. We mentioned Brexit. Brexit was huge, but there was a yeah. number of other countries that that they uh, were were involved with. Yeah, there is um, the documentary explained about how there is voter suppression techniques in Trinidad and Tobago. And I think there is a really good quote that they had used where they had influenced democratic elections through, quote, unquote, weapons grade technology. That was an amazing quote that really hit at home in terms of how this information is being used and how it's it's influencing people. Um you know, is it targeting vulnerable, impressionable voters into into casting their ballots in a certain way? You know, you would like to think that people people ask the right amount of questions. You know, when you get information provided to you, I I would like to think that people take a second to to question the the legitimacy of it. But at the same time, maybe that's a reflection of our current world of our of our current society where most people get their information from these these nuggets of information and these these breaking news uh, headlines that, that flash across your cell phone. Most people really don't take the time to watch the six o'clock news, but 
then again, who's to say that the, that the six o'clock news is any more accurate as well? You know, in this day and age where you hear about the, the fake news, that, that's a topic in itself. But, um, you know, getting back to what Cambridge Analytica was doing, it was, it was truly manipulating this information and, and trying to deliberately influence outcomes of elections, which on the surface is, is really unethical. That was something that really jumped out for me was that um, in particular with the U.S. election, they use this term called the persuadables. Yeah, yeah. Which in particular affected swing states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, Wisconsin, that what they were doing was assessing the profiles of Facebook users in those states and targeting those they believed were considered persuadable. And by targeting this, the, these persuadables, they could direct certain information at those people. Like, so if these, through their tracking, these people were potentially concerned about, say, Hillary Clinton and, and her ethics around what she was doing, like the email scandal and, and other things, that if, if people, if they could detect any sort of maybe activity regarding those types of topics, they would be able to push ads like the crooked Hillary campaign, big, that's was Donald, one of Donald Trump's words he used a lot, crooked Hillary. It became a big thing. Like it, they put a whole campaign around the term crooked Hillary. So anyone that was persuadable was getting pushed this kind of information. Exactly. And it's amazing how much information they harvested from sites like Facebook and, and other social media websites, you know, they were likely able to extract, as I mentioned before, about political leanings, some of your, your social views, um, perhaps you were, you were a member or, or maybe you liked something from the NRA, which is a, a huge, um, incredibly powerful lobby group in the U.S. There's so much information that they could get. And, it, you know, it really is really is quite scary. And, and I think that the, the big takeaway for me is that we mentioned before about the information that, that can be extracted from sites like Facebook. And, you know, do we, are, are we accepting of this? Or should this be something that, that angers us? And I think the reason why people are passive is because they just don't know much about it. And, and I think if, if we truly found out how much of our personal information was, was out there on the web, I think we would be shocked. And that, that information is not available to the common person. Right. It, maybe it is. I, I, David Carroll, that was the whole premise of the documentary, was he wanted to get his information. He wanted to know what information do they have on me. And he pr proceeded to bring a lawsuit in the UK because I think that was where one of the arms of Cambridge Analytica was located, that because the data was being stored there or harvested there, that he was able to bring a lawsuit against them. And the question he had was, what information do you have on me and could I please see it? And that was eventually the conclusion at the end of the documentary was that he never did get his answer. That was quite interesting to see that whole situation that he, I mean, that's where it all unfolded. If it wasn't for his 
interest in finding that information or or putting that lawsuit forward that a lot of the stuff that ended up tr- transpiring you know eventually Cambridge Analytica went out of business this Alexander Nix guy he's an e- he's an easy guy to target i think they use the term a bond villain that, <laughs> yeah you know yeah, he's, great. He's, he's totally like a bond villain this guy that's uh going around and talking about what kind of information he's able to to get from people be able to persuade and I, I really like this quote i can't remember if it was him or if this was steve bannon that said this but it says here in order to increase turnout or decrease turnout that we would just put information into the bloodstream of the internet so that it would infiltrate. So things like defeat crooked Hillary, lock her up, all those sort of buzzwords that were going around, they would just start putting that into the bloodstream of the internet and just watching how it infiltrates everybody, their their various, uh, the lives out there that as they interact with, with the internet or social media. So quite interesting. I mean, do you think the documentary missed anything? Like, did it did it get into everything you want? Were you left with any questions at the end of it? Not really, because I think it was pretty straightforward in terms of, you know, the argument that it was saying that um, the harvesting of information is something that we should all be aware of. At the end of the day, I don't know how much that is going to change people's habits. Uh, I don't know if that would, if people truly understood this, would that result in people sharing less on Facebook? It's hard to say. Um, one thing I guess I, I did perhaps question on this is that a, a large premise of the, the argument against Cambridge Analytica were um, came from, from two particular individuals, uh, you mentioned before, Brittany Kaiser and, and Christopher Wiley, who were, I guess, whistleblowers. And I, I guess when I, when I listened to to these people's involvement in how they came out and, and spoke out about their, their former employer, it, it made me question maybe their motives. Was it redemption or was there other factors involved? Was it a re- revenge issue? Were they paid? Uh, that was really the only thing that, that I may have liked to have seen a little bit more information on as to, um, I guess, the, the motivation behind these individuals. But re- regardless of that, it, it was... The evidence was pretty damning against Cambridge Analytica, and I, I think it was it was hard for them to deny the facts, and they went out of business for a reason. But you know, I think the one thing to to keep in mind is that okay, Cambridge Analytica got shut down, but the scary thing is is that there's probably a hundred other Cambridge Analyticas out there that are doing close to the same thing. Well, I so guess how many? I guess that was something that. I mean, Facebook has revised its privacy terms. They did ha- They did make it much more, um, well, I wouldn't say much more, but they certainly made it more transparent that you, here's what we're using your data for. And you can go in, I don't know if you've looked at the privacy settings of Facebook lately, but I would highly suggest anybody who's a Facebook user, go in and look at the privacy settings. They've made it sort of easier to go in and, and look at what data is being shared, but you can opt out of things like, are you okay with us sharing your information with external parties? And then they'll sort of add a, because we'll direct the right kind of messaging or messages. I think they've worded as, have to look it up on the, on the settings, but something like, would you like us to custom, customize your 
advertising experience so that you only receive articles that are of interest to you, making it feel like if you don't check that, you're just going to get a whole bunch of uninteresting articles. So they try to spin it in a way that, okay, we're going to be pushing ads to you. you. This is a free service, Facebook. You don't pay a subscription, so you're going to have to expect to get ads thrown at you. Would you like them to just be relevant and, you know, so that you're not actually maybe wasting your time reading about how to weave baskets and more interest in, in terms of here are the documentaries about baseball that are out there or pick your pick your interest, whatever it might be, cross-training or cross-fit or, I don't know, skiing or or the things that you're interested in in knowing more about so you're getting advertising geared in that direction instead of things that you're not interested in yeah there's a real fine line here between just innocent advertisements versus i guess messages or advertisements that try to influence your habits your voting patterns when it's used for voter suppression that definitely crosses the line. So that that's such a tough thing to police as well. I think most people would argue that it's it's unethical, but you know, at what point does that start? And are are we to blame for this? Most people, and I'll I'll admit that I'm I'm guilty of this as well. Have not gone into my my privacy settings into Facebook in a very long time. So I'm I'm really not sure what I signed up for, and that that's my fault for for doing that. Um, but I, I do think that people do share a lot of information on, on Facebook, more than they probably should. And for myself, I'm on Facebook, and and I'm pretty guarded as to what I put on there. Pretty innocent stuff, like maybe some vacation photos and stuff like that. But I, I don't put a lot of my own personal information sharing that out on onto, onto the internet. A lot of people, in my opinion, do share way too much. Mm. And those those people sort of... They're exactly the type of people that Facebook loves because they can extract so much information. Well, they use that example in in the in the documentary where they show somebody writing a post like a tough day today. My father passed away from after a long battle with leukemia. And they show them the visual on the documentary is they highlight the word leukemia and passed away. And I guess the idea there is that maybe they're able to take that data and then send that person funeral home ads or cancer treatment ads or getting over the death of a loved one ads, therapy, different things like that. I imagine that's how that personal information gets used. Yeah, exactly. And again, you hope that the targeted marketing is is used for honest purposes, and I realize that Facebook is there to they got to make money like everyone else. But as I said, you know this this documentary raises a lot of questions about the the ethics and where does that line get crossed? And more often than not, it gets crossed more often than you think. So, yeah, I thought this was a great documentary. I highly recommend it to our listeners because I think it should be should be a must watch. I I think if if everyone watched this documentary and understand the, the risks that are out there and the lack of privacy that that you have with respect to your information that you share on the internet, I think people would change their habits for sure. I don't know. I mean, for me, I think 
I'm wondering that for myself. Now that I've seen the documentary and, and we've put some attention to it, obviously, in a bigger way than some might just, just having watched it. We've, we've taken notes on it. We've, I've watched actually it one and a half times. I've got through the second viewing of it yesterday just to kind of refresh my memory. But will it change what I share? I don't know. I don't, I mean, I never have shared anything on Facebook that I, at least I don't think, that I wouldn't be willing to share it anyway. It's actually one of the things about having certain friends on Facebook, like work colleagues, for example. I was never a believer in having work colleagues on my Facebook friends list. And eventually people would send me friend requests and I'd be like, well, you know, maybe it's okay to share that it's get to know your colleagues a little better. I have to admit, um, one person who's a Facebook friend of mine is my boss. And I, I use that as a little bit of a filter that when I'm going to post something, I do think, well, he's going to read this because he's active on Facebook and he's commented lots of times. And I almost, I was leery about adding him when he first requested it. And then, of course, that, that's a whole other topic is when you don't accept a friend request from your boss, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, it puts you in a tough spot, doesn't it? I had a policy is that I never friended or requested a friend friendship with anyone that I was a uh, that was like a subordinate for me. So I wouldn't I wouldn't request a friendship of someone that was not on equal level in the company because I felt I don't want to put somebody in the position of feeling that they if they don't accept the friendship request that they're somehow being selected against. So that, yeah, that, for sure. so two things there. One is that I like kind of having my boss as a friend because it does somewhat influence what I post. And secondly, I don't ever put anyone under pressure to be a friend with me, especially someone that is in my team that reports to me or is maybe, um, lower, I hate to use the term, but maybe a little lower down on the totem pole that I don't want anyone feeling that I'm using my authority. In fact, I, I would argue that my boss, I don't know if he'll ever listen to this podcast, I think he should think twice about friending people that are in his group, in his team, that it could be making people feel awkward that if they don't accept the friendship request, that maybe he will say, oh, you don't want to be my friend on Facebook. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But um, I want to share, share one other thing from the documentary. One other quote that I thought was interesting is when Cambridge Analytica went to hire a crisis manager for their issue, they couldn't get anyone to accept their they, – they, all of the people they were trying to get a contract with to help them in this crisis management said, oh, no, no, we don't want to – we can't be involved in this. And, and I think the guy that was the CEO, he said, isn't that what crisis management companies are there for is to get involved and help people? But it was funny how nobody wanted to touch Cambridge Analytica with a 10-foot pole from a crisis management standpoint. You know you've got a problem when. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like, I volumes. guess, we're in the insurance business, so we like to say we don't want to insure anything when the building's already on fire. And I think that... Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Cambridge, the the fire was a burning. It sure was. 
All right. Well, I enjoyed this. I hope others who watched the documentary listen to it or are interested. I hope we don't think we provided too many spoilers here, but I highly encourage it. Like you said, have a listen to this or have a watch of this documentary. It is on Netflix now. I think it's a Netflix production, so it's available, I believe, anywhere you can access Netflix. But glad we did this. And I think this topic's going to show up now and then anyway, in just in terms of some of the conversations that we have in the future. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're going to move on to the weird news story. And I know you selected something that you found interesting out there regarding South Korea, I think it was. Do you want to share with us what you got? Absolutely. Yeah, this was a really funny headline that jumped out at me. The uh, The headline reads, South Korean soccer team used sex dolls to fill empty stadium. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so let, let me explain a little bit about that. So a South Korean soccer club... Uh, used approximately 30 sex dolls to make an empty stadium look like it had fans. Um, so as you know, a lot of professional sports teams are returning to action in various parts of the world, but most stadiums are playing to uh, to empty stadiums with obviously no fans in attendance due to coronavirus. And the the soccer club had put these sex dolls at various points throughout the stadium and their statement was that they believed that the figures were just ordinary mannequins. Uh, so the article said that the action on the field must, must not have been great because people quickly noticed that some of the fake fans were wearing clothing advertising sex toys, plus many of them were especially busty. <laughs> so who noticed this? The people on TV watching it or the fan, yeah. the players, or who noticed this? People on TV. So they were watching this, and they noticed that there was, uh, well, I guess people must have known that there was not, that these must have been fake fans. I, I think the the intent of the soccer club was to use it as sort of a gag. Um, so they, as I mentioned, their original intent was just to have ordinary mannequins, but when they ordered these mannequins, it ended up being these, these sex dolls. Um, so yeah, I think they were just trying to, to add fun to, to the to the non-spectator match, but uh, unbeknownst to them that they were actually sex dolls. So the, the team apparently has expressed, quote, sincere remorse over the incident. And, and it mm. should be pointed out that pornography is actually banned in South Korea. So apparently this was a real big no-no in their, in their culture. I, yeah, I know I had heard some, some teams were going to be putting up like pictures of fans, like placards that they could sort of, yeah, like those, yeah. you know, those cardboard cutouts. Okay, I, I've watched a few documentaries out there. In fact, these dolls are actually very popular in Japan as companions. And so I've seen this a bit before. Now, one thing I can tell you is these dolls aren't cheap. These are very expensive dolls. So I'm almost surprised they were able to, I mean, I saw the picture and we'll share that in the show notes, but there was like, looked like a lot of dolls. They weren't just yeah. two or three. Yeah. There was like dozens, if not hundreds of these dolls. Do they say that? How many dolls there were, there were out there? Uh, 30. They, they mentioned approximately 30. Okay. okay. I mean, some of these but, dolls are like five or $6,000 each and they look pretty realistic yeah. from what I could tell in the picture. Yeah. There's a, a funny, when I was reading through the article here, uh, one of the, the funny points that they raised was that uh, apparently, the team was assured by the doll supplier that the figures were not sex products. However, it didn't explain why they chose a company known for making sex dolls. Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
Well, again, from what I could tell in the pictures, they look pretty realistic. So yeah, when you want to yeah. go to someone to find something, a person that looks realistic, then maybe the sex doll manufacturer is the place to go because that's part of what you're paying a premium for is the quality of of it so that it actually gives you the impression that you actually have a real female as a companion <laughs> yeah bizarre yeah, what that yeah. was uh who was that article from what was the publication uh i was huffington post mm -hmm. so it, it's a it's a reputable news outlet so yeah this actually happened interesting yeah uh, so all right I, I, I wonder if we'll see sex dolls at the uh the rogers center in toronto my guess is they'll probably go for the cardboard cutouts all right, yeah. we gotta go because I gotta, I gotta go. I got a call coming up. Yeah, this was a good talk. We uh, tackled some pretty interesting subjects here and a little bit of humor to finish things off. So a good podcast, I'd say. Good, and uh, I want to just remind listeners that if they want to get a hold of us, that we have a website. It's uh, www.wetalkedaboutthis.net. And in there, you can find contact information of how to get a hold of us. We are receptive to feedback, questions, topic ideas, all those sorts of things. Please feel free to shoot us a note. We're also on Twitter. You can find our information on our website around that. You can email us as well. Please reach out. Let us know what you want us to talk about. Share your feelings about The Great Hack, whatever it is. And uh, looking forward to the next episode. Absolutely. Looking forward to next week. Till then. All right, man. Have a good one.